So today, we're speaking with a person who holds a very special place in Tesla's history, widely celebrated as the very first professional stock analyst on Wall Street to give Tesla a buy rating after its IPO. Andrew James' claim to fame is not only rightly predicting, but fiercely defending Tesla's bull case as early as 2011, well before any other financial analyst. What's really cool is after her role as a Wall Street analyst, Andrea then joined Tesla itself, working for Elon Musk in the strategic investor relations role. So today I'm very excited. I wanna ask her what gave her such conviction in Tesla as a business? What is the role and goals of investor relations? And how does Tesla work with institutional investors? Now she's a chief communications officer. I'm curious to get her thoughts on what advice she might give Tesla on communications and public relations but try to remember what it was like a decade ago, way back in 2012. Like David fighting Goliath, Tesla had just started their first factory the year before and just launched the Model S. She was practically the only Tesla bull with such unflappable convictions about Tesla's future at a time when the vast majority were skeptical. She is without a doubt the original Tesla bull amongst all of us. So thank you so much, Andrew. Really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you for having me on. Okay, well, let's get brighter. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, Andrea. So, uh, I, you know, you're very, very unique. I, I obviously dug up your history and your story of where you are today is impressive. You are previously an investor relations at Tesla, like I said, prior to that, you're a business reporter, journalist, then you became a sell side analyst, and now you're a chief communications officer. So there's so many great questions that only you can help me understand. Um, the first question I've been asking is, and people have been asking me as Tesla investors, is the board and the executive team of a company, are they responsible for the stock price appreciation? And specifically, the kind of debates I've been having one with some investors is, are they responsible? Is Elon responsible for the stock price movements in the next six months? Or people like me, who, who are long-term investors, we really just want him to build the best company, the best product, and the next year and onwards, the stock will appreciate. But to what extent is the board and Tesla responsible for the stock price? Great question. So the board is responsible for sitting in the seat of representing the shareholder, but that doesn't necessarily mean there should be an over-focus on near-term stock price appreciation, right? And so the board is responsible for governance and making sure that good governance practices are being followed and the company is sort of on the right track and the board's job is to advise um, and provide guardrails and governance. The theory is that when you do that, the stock price will appreciate over time. An over-focus on near-term stock price movements can be a problem, particularly if the stock is down for because of a misunderstanding or a near-term reset. If the stock is down, forget Tesla, any company, if the stock is down yeah. in the near-term for a reason that is a fundamental problem, then the board would be concerned with that. But if the stock price is down for some other reason, like the company's going through a transition or whatever it is, then that shouldn't be a hyper area of focus for the board. In the last six months with Elon buying Twitter, I know you're not necessarily following Tesla as closely as you used to, but you know, do you agree that do you think you would guess that the board sat him down and said, listen, you need to focus on, on Tesla. You need to change your communication that you've been doing in Twitter. Or do you think that, uh, yeah, <laughs> what's your guess of what might have happened in those you know, closed doors? 
Um, well, it depends on who's running the day to day at Tesla. Like clearly someone needs to be, you know, a steady hand at the wheel on the day to day business of a, a giant business like Tesla. And so the board's job, like, is to make sure that the right people are in place to run the company, whether that's Elon from day to day, maybe not. Right. Because he is. He's, and sometimes I will say appearances can be deceiving because mm-hmm. like Elon has said, it takes two seconds to send out a tweet, but it gives the perception that you are spending all day, spending all day on Twitter when really you might just be firing from the hip and just saying stuff. But I think that in general, the board's job is to make sure that the company is being well, well run on a day-to-day basis. And they probably have insight that we would not have into the actual people around Elon who are doing that. Okay. Nice. Okay. Good. And then um, the other question I've got is the institutional investors. Okay. So I'm very curious how this all works. We've been waiting with bated breath for uh, uh, to getting investment grade credit rating from S and P and Moody's. And you know, Alexander Mertz, Tesla Boomer Mama, has been reporting this out. This is her life in the past, and it finally happened. We got S and P. It was just it was a, a complete crime that they didn't give it when all the metrics showed that they were so far ahead of all the other companies, not only the top five hundred but also the auto, auto companies. So now that they've got institutional grade credit rating, what is how does investor relations work in Tesla? You used to work there. Do you do you communicate with the big institutions like BlackRock and Vanguard and and the others? Uh, so it does. It almost doesn't matter if they got institutional great credit rating or uh, yeah. What is your role as investor relations in terms of managing these big big whales? So the institutional grade credit rating is a bonds question. It's the rating that they get on the debt. <clears throat> yeah. Whereas the institutional shareholders are buying equities, which is the stock. Um, now, a lot of the, the the debt is convertible debt, which converts into stock. But I would say in general, you would piece apart the debt holders, the bond holders from your equity holders, because your equity holders want your stock price to appreciate over time. The bond holders really just want to get their money back plus some interest. Or if they're playing it for the convert, that it would convert into stock, which they would get a nice return, although the company would probably settle in cash, so that wouldn't happen. So long way of saying the 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 debt rating on the company is looked at a little bit different than how the equity holders would look at uh, the company. Does, does that yeah, make I, sense? I guess what I'm asking, yeah, no, no, I, I, I got you. There's these investors who's already invested in the company. I'm, I'm more interested in those, you know, the, the school funds and the union funds who've been waiting on the product that they need to see the company to have an invested great credit rating before they can start investing. Got do it, you guys communicate it. with them on a regular basis? Uh, do you reach out to them? Your job in investor relations is to ensure that your company is owned by all the, the right shareholders for you. And that doesn't mean every shareholder. So one of the things you think about is, you know, if you're a certain type of company, you're a rapid growth technology play, are the ki- types of companies who like to invest in that space invested in your company? If there is a fund that wants exposure to autos, like for Tesla's example, you know, you would want an auto investor to be invested in your company. And so the answer is both yes and no. It really depends on you know who the investor is and the types of companies they tend to buy or they want to own in the portfolio. In general, you companies are always shopping for capital. Long way of saying like you as a company, you always want to ensure that you have access to the widest investor base that you can get access to. That will help to create demand for your stock so you can trade to top of peer group, meaning that your valuation is, you know, in the upper call it quartile of 
of peers, um, either on a revenue basis or on a profit basis. That's that's in general what your job is as an investor relations. And to make sure that, uh, you know, you're constantly retiring misinformation, making sure you're staying present, making sure that, you know, you're answering investor questions in a timely manner. Yeah. So you're proactively reaching out to these investors. You're proactively sharing the story. And so even if they read something that was, uh, you know, misinformation, disinformation that's so actively out there uh, as investor relation for Tesla or the, those who are there now, they're actively talking to these uh, folks so that they're aware of what the real story is. You can be. I mean, you you have to be highly targeted with it. But mm -hmm. there is nothing to stop an investor relations team from reaching out to active shareholders and saying, like, if, like, let's say in a hypothetical situation, you know, there's a shareholder who wants to own you. And they were like, I just can't own the equity until the debt gets an investment grade credit rating for whatever reason, if that's uh, something that you've run into. When you get that investment grade credit rating, you would absolutely reach out and say, hey, I just wanted to ping you. I wanted to let you know, like your job is to make sure you have the emails of all the people at these funds and say, I just want to let you know we got this. Happy to schedule a call. Right. And then maybe they do. They pick up the phone and they do a call and they can start their work. That's how I, I think you would approach it. I don't know if that's currently what the investor relations department is doing, but it it makes sense. I mean, that's just how you run it. Okay, kind of. <laughs> Let's go back in time. So you are heralded and rightly so. I just uh you are I, I say a hero because way back in 2011, 12, I'm an early investor. I invested in 2012 myself. So obviously I saw the story, felt be believed in it as you did, but you were so brilliant in your ability to communicate. And, you know, if for those people who have invested in Tesla today, and we saw the shorts and we saw the disinformation that we're fighting with in the last two years, there was nothing compared to what you had to deal with in 2011 and 12, when you had less information and less, but I want to play a few clips here. So let's start with the first one, which is showing your bullishness on Tesla at such an early, early uh, stage. And then we'll hear your response to it. Characterize your view is pretty bullish here on the stock. We're pretty bullish on the stock. That's right. Hey, I'm curious. You have a buy on the stock and the stock's at an all time high today. Do you really still tell people to go out and put new money into this thing? It's a great question. My price target's $45, and it got there overnight. Um, I've always said that $45 is a stepping stone on the way to a much bigger company. How much would you pay for a company that's going to do maybe $2.5 in revenue next year in 2014 with more to come? Um, so I've always thought that that was a stepping stone on the way to a much bigger company. And a lot of investors who are coming into the stock are expecting their money to, to generate very nice returns over the two to three to four year time frame. Is that a reasonable expectation in your view, Andrea? I do. I think that this company has got a lot, they've got a lot of exciting things going on and I think they're going to continue to surprise us. I love it, love it, love it, love it. So there's a few things. First of all, you are a sell-side stock analyst for Dougherty, so you're not associated with Tesla. You started, you, you're a technology uh, investor and you saw Tesla, you saw the story and uh, you started to kind of, um, uh, it, it hit its all-time high. And even at its all-time high, you are already still saying it's bullish and you're still going to go further. It's hilarious because obviously people are like, you know, that once it's hit, it's an all-time high, you know, you're and $44, Andrea, $44. That was in, uh, was it August, April of 2013? So. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, I, you know, I had the advantage too of, yes, I saw a lot for sure, but I would say iron sharpens iron. And I had the advantage of knowing that really smart investors were buying it and why they were buying it. And so when you sit in the seat that I was sitting in, I knew who was buying it and why they were buying it. And I got to kind of hear all the different investment theses. And then because information was coming into me, I would also hear a lot from the shorts and like these negative arguments would come in and I would say, well, I don't know if that's true. And then it was my job to go check it out. And I had been an investigative business reporter prior to being a stock analyst. So I'd hear some negative story and be like, okay, let's see if this is true. Let's go knock on some doors. Let's go figure it out. And so you could retire some of the short theses. You're like, uh, that's not, that's, that's a rumor. Like that's not even true. And so, you know, in the seat that I sat in, I was very privileged because I was able to, when, when a stock is hitting an all time high, know that some major funds are buying it for, for massive upside. And you hear their thesis, and then you hear this thesis and you go, okay, this makes sense, or this doesn't make sense or whatever it is. And so all of the information was kind of coming into me. And so when, by the time I went on TV, there was nothing that those anchors could throw at me that I would say <laughs> Wall Street has not thrown at me. Like Wall Street is the harshest critics. I would, I mean, I would sit on the phone with shorts and they were basically like, you're such an idiot. <laughs> so of course. I don't know. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? And so that's fun that you have those TV clips because those TV clips, the person of me sitting in there was very <laughs> sharpened by Wall Street at that point. Yeah, yeah. But like you said, you were a business journalist, investigative business journalist. And so you didn't just, you know, <laughs> look at the journal, the, the news articles and the announcements. You went in and talked to folks. And one of the things we'll talk about earlier later is you actually met and you were talking about J.B. Straubel and how you believe he was and probably is still today the, the person who has the most knowledge about batteries and technology. And there was a little battle between you and Shorts about uh, the Tesla's battery technology at the time. And you go, <laughs> uh, I, I talked to the, the actual people and that's not true what you're saying. So uh, I, I have to show the sh your battle with shorts. It is, it, is, it is rewarding for us Tesla Bulls <laughs> to watch this. And so I love this clip that I'm gonna show now. The thing that's changed from when Tesla was a $30 stock to today, it's not really what the end market potential is. It's not some of the engineering prowess they have at the company. That's all the same. What's changed is how quickly people are getting it. And Mark, you got to drive the car. I, I understand. I just don't know where I'm going to plug it in, Andrea. <laughs> well, Elon says he maybe has around Silicon, maybe, maybe, maybe around Silicon Valley you can do that kind of thing. But in Northeast Florida, there's absolutely no place to charge a Tesla that I'm aware of. Oh, there's plenty of places to charge it in Florida. Public charging stations, Tesla will be building charging stations. But the best place is your own garage. But, you know, but Andrea, let me just... It'll bring down my, it'll bring down my grid. <laughs> let me just point this out, though, because we were looking at shares of... Uh, we were looking at, the, uh, at some of the numbers around Tesla. Uh, Andrea, it's at 1,100 times... PE. That is, and that is, I mean, that's astronomical. How can that be justified? Yep. So in 2010, 2011, chairs. wait, 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 wait. In 2010, 2011, Tesla was trading at what the company could do in the future. So it's trading on potential earnings. Um, if the, they max out the factory, 500,000 vehicles a year, it's a $300 stock. Okay. So Tesla's wow. trading on what they can do in the future. Um, and they've got a factory that can do about 20 billion in revenue, about 2 billion in net income, assuming a 10% NOPAT. 
And um, that's about 14 to $15 a share. <laughs> so there's still room for it to go. Well, Mark? Andrea, I have some swamp in Florida I want to sell you. <laughs> you got to drive the car. What a great clip. You got to <laughs> drive the car. That is so good. The stock is now at $100. This is like a few months afterwards. It has skyrocketed. The PE was 1,100 times, and you stuck to your guns. You said... <laughs> Forward looking, uh, da da da. They already have a factory, and you just, you know, he just kept saying. I mean, I guess I can't say it's stupid. At that time, it wasn't stupid. I guess you know, uh, you know, it's going to take down my grid. Where I'm going to charge it, and you just said, <laughs> "Slot, slot, slot." But I love that you ended that one. You got to drive the car. <laughs> It's interesting now to look back because that clip is 10 years ago and yeah. it was call it in the first half of quantitative easing. And so these PE arguments, especially in 2013, you know, on a price to earnings. So PE price to earnings, your, your channel knows this capital had no place to go, right? It wasn't going to make any money in a bank, right? You know, interest rates were very low and it was in the, like we had, you know, a decade of quantitative easing where, there was just a lot of capital to be had. And so these PE arguments like, oh, it's trading at 1100 PE with a growth stock doesn't make sense, even in the macro environment we were sitting in at that time. And sometimes I wonder if some of the early pushback we got is that quantitative easing itself, capital was freely available and capital was chasing growth. You know, and we've seen that change now with, you know, inflation and interest rates have come up, but especially at that time, um, it's just not a valid argument to be like, oh, it's 1100 PE when it's a growth company, growth company and capital had to chase growth because if you just kept your cash parked somewhere, you're going to lose because the interest rates were so low. So it's a very interesting, like in, even in the macro of that time, just I listened to those arguments again and it was like, they just weren't accurate arguments for why the stock would do what it was going to do. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, I, it's, uh, it's, it's, so I want to hear what you're thinking about today because it, it's like people are, um, you know, many analysts, they kind of look at the stock price and they believe that the stock price is an accurate, uh, measure. In fact, some of them think it's the most accurate. The market tells you what it, the real valuation is the buyers and sellers, they determine what it is. And so I've been hearing people saying today, oh, the, the PE ratio is 50 today that's accurate. That is fairly valued at the car, but no one's evaluation. People are not going look forward. Look at where we are today with four factories, all almost at scale. You've got the bot company, you got the energy company, you got the AI company. I mean, you were talking about, look at the future back then, which is almost all EVs. Uh, now it's like EVs plus everything. And yet the PE is at 50. What is your, uh, yeah. How do you, I mean, I mean, I'm not trying to ask, give you investment advice, but as a, as a invest, uh, as a stock analyst at that time, how would you, how would you view Tesla today? What would you be saying today? Well, the questions I would be asking are because I'm not following it day to day and I own it, yeah. by the way, it's my yeah. second largest position outside of my current company. Um, and I own a Tesla as well. So yay. Um, <laughs> the question I would be asking myself is, you know, do you think growth estimates are going to come up from here, meaning is the street not fully valuing 
where the growth is going to come from, or is it priced in? Now, I will say earnings and cash flow matter more today than it did in 2013. It's just the nature of the macro environment that we're sitting in. So earnings and cash flow do matter. However, that PE multiple has come down right from back then. So the question is, is the growth that the street is expecting, do you believe there's meaningful upside to what Tesla can do? Or put another way, is there a gap between expert expectations and what you think will be future reality. And if you think so, then the stock would outperform. Um, if if you think expectations and what will actually happen are kind of well matched, then the stock will just go grow in line with the company's growth, right? Um, and then if there's um, the delta is to the downside, meaning like expectations are like sky high and it's priced to perfection and you think Tesla might stumble a little bit or not grow as fast, then the stock would come down. There would be a you know re-rating down. So I think those are those are the three questions I would put back to you as the current expert. And I would say sitting in your seat, you're more of an expert on Tesla today than I am today. Um, so I would actually put that back to you. <laughs> no, no, I'm gonna throw it back at you. <laughs> you're the, you're uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody in this channel knows that we're I'm a Tesla bull, I'm a measured Tesla bull. But I also have interviewed so many people. I've interviewed four people on Tesla Bot, and folks are still thinking this is so far ahead, when a far, a far away, when actually it's really close for them to use it in the factories for very special purpose uh, utility, and not needing to, you know, not, we're not talking a consumer bot or all that energy. This can be now prices energy company. Uh, what do you think about that? So I don't know if you knew, but they announced uh, the last investors day. They announced that. Uh, by Q3, Q4, they're going to start reporting on energy alongside uh, the car uh, deliveries and production. So, at that point, right? How how do you, as an how do the uh, institutional investors, how does the Wall Street analysts, how would they look at it now that it's being reported? So it's no, you can't say that this is a car company anymore by that point, right? Or is it is that as big a deal as some of us think, or is it kind of like a a minor blip? You're saying they're going to start reporting out in terms of like. What, energy, mega, mega pack sales, delivery and production. It's a, that's an interesting question. I mean, you definitely wouldn't want to trade like utility. Um, I think. I don't know. Did they say why they're going to report it out? Well, I, I think that it's a, a meaningful business. They they built Lathrop Megapack factory last year, took them less than about a year, and it's on scale. By the end of this year, it will be in scale, um, scale uh, production, you know, 10,000 Megapacks per year. Uh, and then and then there, there's some estimates that they're going to get to $2 billion of profit by this year, while most Wall Streets are still thinking it's going to be $2 billion of profit by 2025. Um, I'm not sure what's going to happen there, but it's going to be, it's basically some meaningful numbers now by the end of this year. And so I think they're, they're, they're they, ready to are, start reporting. them. Are they in Pinker plans right now? Cause I know that was part of the bull case in the past. Is are that in are they in what? In Pinker plants? Like, are they offsetting? Oh, yes. oh okay. gosh. Yeah. I mean, this is the uh, most untold story in the world. They've been signing yeah. contracts left, right, and center, not only in Pinker plants, not only in uh, countries all around the world, they've been signing these hundreds of millions of dollar projects, but they've been signing hundreds of millions of dollars of projects with corporations. So Apple Corp themselves are spending 200, 300 million dollars to Tesla to do solar panels and mega packs uh, to be able to power their headquarters, you know, the big circular headquarters in Silicon Valley. 
Um, and more and more of these are being signed. People are just ignoring it, but it's happening. <laughs> it's very exciting. It's very exciting because yeah. it will change how humans live. Um, <laughs> exactly. I mean, it will, right? The ability to store energy is, I mean, it is, it is one of the biggest technology gaps that faces humanity today is the inability to meaningfully store energy in large volumes, yeah. right? And so what happens is you have to match supply with demand, which is why you have rolling blackouts. And I think with, you know, climate change and you get these extreme weather events and all the air conditioners have to come on at once and stuff like <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. you know, if you can store energy, it solves a huge human problem. So that actually is very exciting. And I'm not surprised they're reporting it out. Like, um, that is very exciting. Um, good. I'm looking forward to living in a society where we have <laughs> massive energy storage. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what does it take for a company in this case, Tesla, how does it, what does it take for the investors to realize, to, to value it properly, not just as car company? Um, I think the story in the narrative is changing, but what will it take? I mean, are you on the side of, if you're when you're on the analyst side where you're going, well, I won't be counting robo taxi until I actually see real revenue on a line item and I can, you know, ex afford this out for the next five years. But if there's no line item for it at this point, you're not making any revenue from it, no one you want to talk about it at this point. Is that how, you know, investors kind of value a company? So investors don't invest in a vacuum, which you know. So when you're you have capital and you have to put your capital to work and you have to put your capital to work in places where you think it will work and it will grow for you. The cost of investing in anything speculative has come up, particularly when interest rates are, are up, right? You just go buy treasuries and you can get a nice right. return on that. I mean, you can get conservatively five to 7% on your money just yeah. by putting it in things that are very low risk at all. And so if you don't have to incur very much risk to get those kinds of returns, the return has to be that much greater to go after something risky. I think that is the umbrella framework and the current macro environment that we're sitting with. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of like, oh, Elon is tied up with Twitter and this is what's affecting the stock and all that. I actually think the macro is probably a bigger yeah. contributor to the current stock price action. And I'm just looking at the chart here. Like, you know, I mean, it also had this massive run up in 2021 um, and it's starting to recover some of that, but I think that's probably the bigger contributor. So when you talk about like robots or something like that, if I'm an asset manager, I have to go, all right, cool. But I need to actually chase like real earnings today or real cash flow okay. today. And so I can maybe put some of my capital towards speculative capital, but I don't have to because of interest rates being where they are. Um, that is generally how I think that most of the investor base, um, I would say like sort of like the sophisticated institutional investors are thinking about it. Now, as individuals, we can have a different calculus, right? We don't have to follow all these formulas or whatever. We get to invest our own money however we want, right? And so, you know, it's kind of nice. You're like, okay, I'm just going to, I call it the coffee can, right? Coffee can this thing, just buy the stock, <laughs> put it in the coffee can, bury it in the backyard, go back sometimes and look at your coffee can. You're like, ooh, it's up, you know? And then when it's down, you just leave it buried for a while, right? That is that is a fine for an individual investing strategy. I would say institutions don't get to do that. <laughs> um, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Well, do you think that we, uh, as investors, are paying too much uh, attention or, uh, you know, just thinking that it matters that institutional investors get in? At one point, a couple of years ago, I think it was like 70% retail, 
30% institutional. I think the numbers have now flipped at 50-50. Does it matter that institutionals yeah. come into the stock? Just, I mean, I think, I think you do want institutions in the stock, or I think sometimes, inst I mean, the retail, gosh, so are you saying that Tesla has 30% retail ownership? At this point, it's it's probably higher than that. At this That's point, amazing. no. In the past, it used to be 70 percent retail, and now it's flipped. Now there's more and more institutions are coming in. It's fifty fifty or something like that. At this it point. depends on the amount of capital available. I do think that um, retail matters m more than it ever has, or at least in the last few years, it, retail really matters, and you have to have a retail strategy. And I can see where retail has carried Tesla. In terms of whether it matters, yeah, absolutely, it matters. I think though, in order for, to have uh, more meaningful share price appreciation from here. You do have to get more of the institutional ownership, but I don't think I'm, the stock is doing quite well. I'm actually, I'm just looking at like, it's going to hit a resistance here at 249. It looks like, um, but once it crosses that the 100 day, it will be above all three moving averages. So, you know, the 200 day moving average is 185. The 50 day moving average is 209. And then you have a hundred day of 250 and it looks like it's about to pop up above that. And so, um, you know, once you've got that stock's doing pretty well, I mean, um, I don't think it's doing poorly at all. I mean, it's down off the all time highs, but I think that the late 2021, you know, that, that the asset price inflation we saw in 2021 was not real, right? That was, that was macro driven as well. And also you had like mm -hmm. COVID and everybody was stuck at home. And so yep. stock trading became like a hobby. Um, but I think the stock's actually doing quite well, and it, um, it's really recovered nicely off the lows, one twenty uh, something in last December. Yeah, so I think actually the stock's doing pretty well, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, no, it's gone well, but I think it's still undervalued. That's the that's my personal opinion. Um, that you know, I've been saying that if the stock fell from three hundred to one hundred, why do people think that it can't rise from one hundred to three hundred uh, just as quickly? Or same time frame. Now they're going, oh, you know, we're at 200 and 250 to whatever. It's going to take us another year, two years to get there. Now it's all, like you said, it's macro. The macro has a turn. This is a growth stock. It's a narrative stock, a story stock. And so if that doesn't change, no amount of good news from Tesla budget makes the stock budge as we witnessed in 2022. Uh, but everything's happening. The fundamentals are chasing it. So I'd also add to you, though, Herbert, like even a fairly valued stock if the company is growing very quickly, will outperform, right? And so yeah. I think that there's there's something to be said for, if Tesla's gonna continue growing, it's absolutely like something like for me, like I would wanna have access to, like, or I wanna have exposure to in my portfolio, like that's so exciting. Um, So, you know, especially if something is hugely disruptive, if it's part of future trends, like these near-term movements, like, you know, in a yeah. decade, you'll look back and you'll be like, yeah, I'm so glad I had, you know, exposure to the company that was bringing energy storage to the masses. Like, yeah, that makes sense. That's a that's a pretty, pretty secular trend, you know, that you want exposure yeah. to um, not investment advice, but just, you know, on a personal basis. Like if you can afford that and you don't need the money in the near term, you cannot kind of just ride through some of the ups and downs. I mean, that's what my strategy has been. Uh, mm -hmm. That's nice. That's great. I love it. Yeah. Exactly. Let's go back to memory lane. I want to show a clip of you talking about uh, Tesla's valuation way back then. <laughs> Andrew, we, we, we agree with that. We've covered Tesla extensively on Street Signs. However, I'll push back a little bit. 
They're only going to sell like 21,000 cars this year, and they have a more than $12 billion market cap. With your price target, if it's hit, you're looking at a $20 billion company. That's about a million dollars a car valuation. It is today. You know, uh, the last couple years, Tesla is a forward-looking story. And so my price target is a forward-looking price target. The stock today is uh, forward-looking. So, you know, back in 2010, 2011, the stock was trading on what they could do this year. Um, now we know they can make a really good car for $80,000. Can they make a really good car cheaper? Um, the stock will get the credit, I believe, for the answer to that, which I think is yes. Just yep. a quick note on Andrea there. What's interesting about Andrea, and I think it defines Tesla, yep. is that she doesn't cover the other car companies. She covers Stratasys, 3D printers. She covers an unmanned aircraft. She's basically a technology analyst. And I think that says a lot about how people are looking at Tesla. Yay. Technology so analyst. How come the, yes. <laughs> that was 2012? <laughs> no, but it's true, right? And then you saw Tesla as a technology, not a car company, but yet many others can't get it out of their head. Even today, they still can't. I mean, the most recent, uh, you know, bear kind of table that they put out was somebody put out and said, Tesla's market cap. And then they go, here's the next 13 car companies together. And you add up all their market caps and it's still, uh, Tesla's still higher. And so they still look at Tesla as a car company. Um, Love it. Uh, I, I just, I keep coming back to you saying that the stock had risen from 30 <laughs> that same year, or no, actually it was earlier. And now it's like a hundred and now you have a price target of 200 and you're just, you know, bull and you knew it and you, you were proven correct. Uh, all these people were just debating you, but you are correct. So <laughs> how do you and see valuation today? Yeah. Momentum can be compounding, right? Like momentum begets momentum. And so you know, you could, you could imagine like some people might say, oh gosh, it's at an all time high. Like let's sell. And it's like, actually, no, there's actually a phrase on wall street called buy your winners and sell your losers. Mm -hmm. Meaning like if something's doing well for you, buy more of it, which is so sometimes counterintuitive. You're like, why would I buy more? And then you have a loser that's down and you're like, you probably should sell it and just get out of it. Um, but you're like, it's down. And I have this price in my head from where I bought it. Um, and so you know, momentum stocks, uh, momentum begets momentum. And so, yeah, if something goes from 30 to hundred, it, it probably is an easier buy than when it was at 30, because if a stock re-rates, it means some sort of bear thesis just got retired. That's very exciting too. Cause then people are like, oops, I was wrong. I need to get into this right now. So sometimes momentum will beget momentum. Okay. Wonderful. Love it. You're teaching me so much today. So let's get back to today. What's happening in Tesla, your chief communications officer. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of conversation within the Tesla Twitter community of what Tesla should be doing. I don't know if you were following, but for months when the stock was down, everybody kept saying, and, and, you know, especially in January when Tesla did across the board price cuts in their cars, why cut the price? when they should be advertising instead. Now, Elon has been in previous interviews, had already said, you know, he's not necessarily against advertising. And he said, you know, I probably should advertise because, uh, you know, these, these news, these multi, these media outlets, they kind of, uh, they do a lot of misinformation on, on Tesla because their advertisers are all car companies. And so they, they can't piss off their current car companies. And he goes, if I just advertise, maybe that'll be some of that. Um, so, I know I don't know I don't think you're exactly in advertising, but what would your advice be to Tesla today about communications, uh, public relations? What 
uh, again, you're not necessarily following Tesla closely anymore, but any, any thoughts on that and how you would look at what they're doing today and what you would suggest they might be doing uh, better? Or? So I would, um, I would separate our thinking into two categories. One is what does the customer think? And that's marketing, that's advertising. What does the customer think about us? Is the customer buying behavior changing? Is there um, a slowdown in demand, right? And I don't have access to that data. So that's the customer. And is the customer buying behavior changing? And then there's another thing called your reputation with the wider world, not including your buyer. So one is marketing, the other is your reputation management. How do you manage your reputation? And reputation man management matters from the standpoint of like, policy, government affairs, like, you know, Tesla's had to fight, you know, the dealer networks and trying to sell direct to consumer. And they've had to have um, government relations in certain states just, just so they can sell their product, right? And so you can't just ignore it. You have to have government relations people or whatever, and that's your reputation management. And I think Tesla does do government relations. And then there's the broader reputation with, you know, the general public. And of course, when you're a consumer products company, the general public becomes your buyer, right? So those are kind of how you would think about the landscape and who you're trying to talk to and when. Tesla doesn't have a communications team. Like clearly they're like, no, on the media that we're never going to get a fair shake. So why would we invest in talking with media? Fine. Um, just, I love it. It's like, that's just who Elon is and that's how he feels. But I think my question would be is, you know, they lowered pricing. So what were they seeing in the stores where they felt like they had to drop the price to move inventory? Because when you see a company lower prices, it generally means, and by the way, I am not following Tesla day to day. So I'm, right. I'm really just reacting to what you just said. But when a company lowers prices, in general, it means that probably demand is weakening in some way or mm -hmm. you're seeing a softening demand environment. We don't know why. But you're seeing it, and so you. But you don't want to lose efficiencies at your factory, so you lower prices so you can keep yeah. inventory moving. You got and you it. Keep that factory efficiency. Okay. Yeah. So you know what did they see? What were they seeing in the stores? Um, I think inflation is going to affect consumer buying behavior, right? And it's hard to tease that apart from. And it's very easy to come up with a thesis that Elon bought Twitter, and therefore people are mad and they're not going to buy Teslas, and the brand is damaged. Is that really true? You actually would have to. You would need data. Like that's just a thesis that. Without data to support it, it's just a hunch, right? And you would have to test your hunch. Um, probably it's tied more to macro, but yeah. th I guess that's how I think about it. So I, you would say like, okay, is demand softening? Yes. Do we have a thesis on why? Can we test why? Can we do some studies? Can we do some research? Um, let's get to the bottom of why demand might be softening and if there's anything we can do about it. That That's where I would come at it. I, I yeah. wouldn't immediately hire a communications person and say, okay, we need to have a better relationship with the New York Times. Like uh, probably not going to move the needle for you from a consumer buying behavior standpoint. Okay. So good point. So so we have to separate our advertising with communications. In, in terms of just to answer the question of what happened, you're, you're, he hit it dead on, right? I mean, they, they, launched, they, they launched two factories last year April, May last year, macro hits, and they're at 50% scale. Mm -hmm. They're going to keep making this go. They're going to build as many cars as they can. It doesn't make sense for them to cut building cars. So now That's you're right. creating more cars at the time when the macros hit. And like you said, and Elon's complained about it quite a bit, where the interest rates have made it very difficult for people to afford these cars. Mm -hmm. And so they've cut the prices. They have variable pricing. They have every day, he said, I've got tracking of the pricing of the cars. 
And so okay. they adjust the pricing. They'll adjust it up. They'll adjust it down to hit the demand. There was definitely softening of demand. That was never really a big question people were saying. But the question is, some people are saying, why did you cut the prices so significantly when you could have advertised? When my reaction to that was, you know, they're going to cut prices until they get to uh, price parity with ICE cars. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. They, like you said, in a couple last couple of years, because of COVID, they had supply chain issues. They were able to sell the cars. They had to sell the cars at a, you know, this weird price point, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars more than when they first launched the car. Well, so all they're doing now is bring the price back to where it was when they first launched both the Model Three and the Model Y. Anyways, so the question now is communications. Did it harm the brand? The most recent uh, big studies are showing that. There is currently no hit on Tesla's brand, um, depending on which one you're looking at. But I think most of them are saying there's no hit on Tesla's brand based on Elon Musk's uh, kind of tweeting. So if you were uh, in Tesla, and by the way, let me show you this, uh, Tesla, uh, Elon has been talking about it, that he's going to hire a communications person. And uh, so he tweeted this out yesterday. He said, looking to hire a vice president of witchcraft and propaganda. <laughs> That's what he considers uh, communications people because he thinks that, it, you know, it, you know, basically uh, PR is basically propaganda. You're basically just trying to change people's minds and, and trying to you know, force them to think a certain way. Um, so, he, no, I think this is a real deal. Like he's talked about, you know, he's going to hire somebody. <laughs> so uh, two things. One, I, I uh, used to be a reporter on Amazon, and I remember I was at one of their annual meetings years ago. And somebody asked Jeff Bezos if they would consider advertising the Kindle. And Bezos responded, advertising is the price you pay for having an inferior product. Um, and I think about that often when I see Elon's aversion to advertising. In terms of VP of witchcraft and propaganda, I mean, look, <laughs> I, is that for Tesla or is it for Twitter though? No, I that's know. for Tesla. I, th I think that's Tesla. He's already hired the VP of Witchcraft. That's the VR for. Uh, so, no, I mean, he just hired the CEO for Twitter. There is something to be said about educating the public about your product. Now, I do think yeah. Tesla has this amazing, you know, retail shareholders and fan base. The Tesla fan base creates ads for Tesla. And you can see them on their YouTube and they're so inspirational. It's amazing. And so Tesla gets free publicity all the time. I mean, Elon is a walking, you know, meme machine. Yeah. And so uh, do they need to put money toward it when they get lots of free publicity? I don't know. Witchcraft and propaganda. I mean, he's just hilarious. I mean, oh. I don't know. I don't know what to if say. If you're a that. communications officer at Tesla, what would you do? I mean, obviously you're not going to be able to do anything with Elon, right? He's just going to be him. So you no. need to work around him. I would focus on the science of the product. I think that the, the beauty of Tesla is it is an engineering company that operates from first principles. And I would evangelize first principles thinking to the whole world. Um, I think that first principles thinking is applicable to all areas of life, not just your car. And so I think that's one of Elon's and Tesla's biggest gifts to the world is when you operate from first principles thinking, remarkable things happen. And so if I were in terms of charge of communications, it would really be like a first principles approach and just educating the public about how first principles thinking works. Wow. You're, you're blowing my mind. I love the answer. I would never have expected anybody to have said that, but because you know Tesla so well, 
Because <laughs> unless it's that. prohibited by the laws of physics, anything yeah. is possible. Anything is possible. You could inspired me even more. Okay. <laughs> right? It's just like, I just love that. And, you know, there's a, there's a study happening right now where they're trying to see if you can create food from molecules on the moon. Right? And so there's, you can, humans will become an interstellar species, right? This is first principles thinking, but for having the knowledge, anything is possible. This is why our society today would look magical to our ancestors. Think about FaceTiming. I was reading the Harry Potter books to my kids and <laughs> they have this thing where I think Harry has like this magic mirror or whatever. We can talk to his uncle or whatever, you know. I, yeah. you know I, the point is, is he holds up this thing, which when I was a kid was magic. If you could hold up something and talk to someone, oh. Well, that was considered magic when we were kids. And now my kids take for granted that, of course, you have FaceTime on your iPhone. Like, everything is Mirror, possible. mirror on the wall. <laughs> yeah, but for the laws of physics. I mean, so that would be, that's what I think the story is with Tesla. And that's oh, what's so inspirational. I like this a lot. Um, so one of the things you made a claim, again, you you have, you've been so far ahead of the curve. You've been saying things ahead of anybody. You really are the original Tesla bull, but a lot of things you've said has come true. And one of them you did make the claim was that JB Straubel should be considered the world's expert in battery technology. And you did that again, decade ago. Now, JB Straubel's back as the board. He was a board member. He was re, um, re-voted back in, or I don't know if he was back in or not, but he's, he's there. He's now back in Tesla and he has his company, uh, that is recycling batteries. They just launched the lithium refinery that's out there. Um, and and yeah, so this this concept of J.B. Straubel is the world's expert in battery technology. Uh, you know, do you still believe that that's the truth? And how did, why did you make that claim back then? Well, because it was true. <laughs> yeah. So I remember at the time I had gone to like electric vehicle conferences and Tesla wasn't there. They weren't represented. There was this whole industry and I would talk to lithium ion battery experts and I'd say, well, Tesla says they have this cost per kilowatt hour and they have all this power in the, in the battery pack. And I would talk to other experts at, you know, academia or whatever. And they would go, yeah, we just don't think that that's true. We'll see. And I was like, so either Tesla's committing securities fraud or you don't really know what's going on. Like Tesla's just so far away from, from the current status quo. And so you have to, you have a judgment call to make. You're like either J.B. Straubel is like a giant fraud and liar, which is so obviously not true, or yeah. Tesla's heads and tails in front of everybody else and the entire rest of the industry. And, you know, if you look at how Tesla got to be where it is, it was the Roadster, right? They had these high-priced vehicles, but they were uh, producing battery cells in the battery packs for the Tesla Roadster, and they were getting all the data off of the Roadster network, right? And so it's a handful of cars, but it was more than anybody else had access to at the time, and you just build from there. And so then once you get the Model S, then you get all the data off of that. And so as the vehicle network grows, when it comes to specifically um, battery packs for automatic automotive use, nobody else was doing it. So then they get this huge data lead as well, where they had, uh, they would get the data and then I, they would, they, I got to go through some of the R and D facilities where they would get this data back and they'd see how battery cells would perform under certain conditions and how do you, you know, extract, how do you extract power from that battery cell and, and I don't know, prevent overheating and all the stuff that they do around that. Um, and so 
I think the other thing that gave me confidence was that first principles thinking and that design thinking where you design, iterate, test, and learn, right? So you iterate, you make a little bit of change, you test, you see what happens, and then you learn from it and then you prove and that improve. And so that cycle of continuous improvement kept them at the leading edge. They never got complacent. They never said, oh, you know, we've got a, we've got a good enough product. And so when you can, when you keep trying to continuously improve, you stay out in front. I love talking to people who actually worked at Tesla. So I want to ask you questions about what it was like there. Can you show us your room a little bit? Last time I talked to you, <laughs> it's funny that you you had some stuff on your room. So what's that? So that's the Model, Model 3. 3, which I yeah. got at the Model 3 launch, um, oh. 2016, was it? Yeah. Um, this is the Model S. Okay. And it says 2012 is the year of the Model S. Oh. Um, yeah. I, I Gosh, that's I had my... It's funny. I feel like I had two babies that year. The Model S was launched and I had my first child. I became a mom in 2012. So very special year for me. Um, I remember going to, you know, these different launches and, and there's a story where I was actually very pregnant with my daughter and she came out like a week before my due date because I went for a ride, a test ride in the Model S and we went from zero to 80 in like a few seconds. And I felt this thing and I was like, is there a reason why women aren't pregnant? Women aren't supposed to go on roller coaster rides, and I felt like a shift. And like that night, I went into early labor. It's like, oh, um, and that's great because when a baby comes out a week early, everybody's happy. So, um, yeah, so that was a that was a great year. Sorry, you actually asked a question though. No, that's, this is hilarious. This is such a good story. I love it. This is amazing. I mean, I think I was like, I was like pregnant for the Model X launch as well. I showed up for that. Um, it's kind of funny. Like building my easy family. way to know how how old these cars are. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I will say the best story, and I've tweeted this story out. One of the really fun story is, you know, I only worked for Tesla for less than a year. Um, I went and did investor relations for, um, for Elon, and that was amazing. And then I left um, to go do to build an investor relations function for my current company. Um, and I've been there ever since, and now I'm the chief communications officer of this company. Um, but we were so in conjunction with CES in Las Vegas, we had a Gigafactory tour in Reno. Um, kind of piggybacking off the CES events. We had a lot of investors who had flown out to CES in Las Vegas, and they did a quick hop over to Reno to go tour the Gigafactory. So we were going to have this big Gigafactory event. It was like the first week of the new year, and this would have been early 2017. I was pregnant again. Anyway, so uh, I have three kids. So um, so I remember we had gone out to the Gigafactory uh, like a month in advance just to say like, like to get it set up, to kind of come up with what the tour was going to be. There was like a handout just to, it was like batteries 101 to explain to the investor base what Tesla's doing. There was a, you know, the, the, the venture with Panasonic. And so Panasonic was there as well. But we were out there. And at that time, the Model 3, there was like a Model 3, um, it was just a model vehicle. And it was a multi-million dollar vehicle because when you, you only have one or two of these you know, they don't drive. They're just these beautiful pieces of art that can basically just sit on display and it goes to auto shows and stuff. And so we had said, you know, it'd be really great to have a Model 3 in the lobby of the Gigafactory for this event. And so we asked, you know, the Model 3, the, 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 the team that had these models, and we said, hey, can we have a Model 3? And the reply back was, yep, sure. That was it. That was the end of it. So we had flown out and uh, we were all talking about this event and I'm looking around the lobby and they're like, the Model 3 is going to go right there. And I look and I'm like, okay, well, there's like double doors that humans can fit through. So I go to the guy who was running the Gigafactory at the time and I go, 
well, how are you going to get the car in the lobby? And he goes, oh, we'll just take the wall off. And I was like, oh, well, silly me, you know, asking the stupid <laughs> question, you know? Yeah. And so this thing had to be trucked. This was in January over the mountain passes with the snow. It couldn't get wet. This was the other thing. It couldn't get wet. Like, I was like, well, you got this multi-million dollar model that can't get wet. And so at the time that my plane landed and I got over there, they were just fish, fixing up the paint. The Model 3 was in the lobby. Oh, they had yeah. taken the wall down, brought the car in, put the wall back, and they were fixing up the paint. And the thing, my conclusion Brilliant. is that this company, anything is possible. Because you would think in any normal organization, when, you, when mm -hmm. we made the ask, nobody said, oh, yeah, but just so you know, we're going to have to do this and we're going to have to do that. And is it really worth it? There was none of that. It was like, can we have it? Yes. And I had no idea what it was going to take. And they just move mountains to make stuff happen. And so I think Tesla is absolutely a vortex of competence. And when I had shared this with some of my social circle, I said, Tesla is a vortex of competence. And it is an amazing place to work because you can just, and of course, we all worked over the Christmas holiday to get this thing done, right? And it's just, um, but that is very rewarding for a certain period of life because you can just make stuff happen and everybody's all in. And it's just a wonderful it's wonderfully rewarding to work in an environment like that. But somebody asked me, they said, well, how do you create that culture? And I was like, well, anyone who's not down with it gets fired, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. and it's like, but that's okay. Cause like, I want that to exist. Right. Um, and, and that's not going to be right for everybody at every point in their life, but to know that there's a place where you can go work and you can make miracles happen or well, what feels like miracles, but they're not because right. There's as long as the first principles allows it, um, I think SpaceX is also that kind of company. Yeah. Uh, very, very inspiring. Love your stories. And so I I positioned you earlier as a business reporter, a stock analyst, investor relations, uh, chief <laughs> communication officer. There's one more job you've done I haven't mentioned, which is you were an executive CEO coach after you worked at Tesla. <laughs> so what advice do you give to CEOs after... <laughs> all this experience you've got and this knowledge vortex of competence. I love it. How do you create a culture? What is your approach to uh, giving consulting to these CEOs? Listening more than I speak, probably would be the first yeah. thing. Um, asking questions. Uh, three types of questions that you can ask in the world. There's transactional questions. How much does this cost? And you tell me how much it costs. And like, there's no, there's questions that serve me. So I ask you a question because I just want, like, I want, I want knowledge about you. How many kids do you have? Blah, blah, blah. And then the third type of question is questions that you ask that makes the person you're asking go, mm. ah, and you know, cause they look up. <laughs> uh, you probably do this all the time, Herbert, right? You ask a I question, just, someone goes, if they I can't just, just answer it, that question prompted thinking. Um, and so, you know, a lot of that third level of question, like, yes, you have to get information, but really asking questions in such a way that I don't necessarily know the answer, you know, mm -hmm. the, the answer is in the person you're speaking with, um, asking questions in cer certain ways that helps them to see things or see possibilities that they didn't see. 
Wow. Every time I ask you a question, you answer with something that is just not something I've ever heard anybody think through. Maybe you are first principle thinking yourself. <laughs> just, I try to be. So. I very much try to be. It's uh, the best way really, to live. The best way to best live. Best way to live. So, oh God, I got, I just, I mean, I'm tempted <laughs> to keep asking questions on Tesla, but the reality is I should be asking you questions about the universe <laughs> at this point. Oh. I mean, okay. So, I mean, you, you, you saw the, you saw Tesla at the early days, you saw something that no one else sees. So clearly you already think differently than most. You were proven correct. Uh, you've left Tesla, but you have expanded your, you know, your, your experience and so forth. Where are you, where are you, where are you headed next? And what, um, what what do you think of Tesla at this point? So you said you're an investor. I, I saw that in one of the write-ups said that you can't uh, you because you were first and you you couldn't personally invest in Tesla uh, when you're working all these things until after you finally left and then you could and so you kind of invested but you still did it very early, <laughs> 2016. Is that funny? You saw its jump from 2011 to where it is now and yet you still invested heavily in Tesla in 2016. What about now? What would you not that you send investment advice, but just based on your experience, how are you looking at Tesla today? I know you said that you're just going to squirrel it away in a coffee can. Don't look at it. It's likely going to keep growing up because it's got so much uh, opportunity and it's going to uh, grow. What's uh, just how, give me another way to think of Tesla today. Well, it depends on, on who you are and what your investment horizon is and what you hope to get. I mean, obviously we all want capital appreciation, but not all of us have a lot of excess capital capital to deploy. I will tell you in 2016, do I wish I had invested more? Yes, but at the same time, I was not, it wasn't suitable for yeah. me. You know, I was a young mom, like I didn't, I did okay on sell-side research, but I didn't make the kind of like big dollars that you might expect. It was a boutique firm. And so even though I was on all these TV appearances, like. I still had to watch my grocery bills. Like, you know, they say there's different levels of wealth. And like, one of them is you have to pay attention to food prices. Like I was still paying attention to food prices. And so, yeah. you know, and I, you know, I didn't come out of foster care at age 18. So I'm starting from like less than zero. You know what I mean? And so, wow. yeah. And so now I'm okay. Like we're, we're okay. Like I'm doing okay. I have a nest egg and my retirement is on track, but I'm not a super extra, hugely wealthy person who got to go and deploy all this capital. And now I have all this extra money, like I wish, but, um, and that's okay too. Like we all started different places and we all have different appetites for risk. And I would say my appetite for risk is probably personally not as high as like some of the people I would, my, my wall street clients, cause they had more capital, right? Like they just had more. And like, so, um, I think suitability is so important. The know thyself piece of investing, because you have to forgive yourself for your risk appetite because you are where you are and um and that's okay and so for me like i you know i bought um probably to it was painful in 2016 i'm so glad i did i took some off the table in 2018 because there was that whole i was mm -hmm. like i don't even i don't know i had two kids i was like a yeah. woman was a baby i was just like i might need some of this money then um, but still kept a nice position. And then, um, actually in the recent come that like last year, I added to my position a bit. Cause I was like, Oh, it's just like overblown. It's so oversold. Well. Like, yeah. And I was like, yeah. So I added a little bit. Um, and so I have a nice, a nice chunk of Tesla stock, but not like 
you know, what I even know, like a lot of the people who listen to my advice probably did even better than me because they had more capital to deploy to begin with. And like, if you start with smaller numbers, you end up with smaller numbers. And like, so I spend a lot of time even with myself, just being like, you know what, that's okay. I was where I was and now I am where I am and I can maybe take more risks today than I could then. I'm in my entering my forties now, but when I was in my thirties, I really couldn't take big risks and have a lot of money. Um, so I just wanted to share that, you know, everybody's personal journey is different. Mine is personal to me. You shouldn't necessarily always do what I do because I have more money to risk now. But in the past, I would not have told, you know, a young mom starting out her career, like, yeah, just go. And yes, it might have worked out for you. But if it didn't, what was the consequence yeah. of being wrong? And so um, and and that's why I did buy until it was painful for me. And I'm so glad I did. But even even that. uh so I, it's the reason why I'm sharing that is because I would like for your listeners to normalize where they are on their investing journey and on their wealth creation journey, because we all start out at different places and we all have different risk tolerance. Um, that was probably not answering your question, but. No, that's okay. I mean, your valuation of the company, you kind of answered it earlier. I think, uh, you know, I know we're short in time here. So I want to just ask you back to your, in your Twitter you're at Andrea S. James on Twitter. People should follow you. You have this pinned tweet that's very interesting to me. And it says, the principle that I've been meditating upon for the past five years is non-dualism, third path thinking, uh, seemingly opposing viewpoints that can be can re reconciled. When two arguments are pointing in opposite directions, there may be a third argument that reconciles the opposites. Why are you meditating on that? And uh, But it sounds really cool. So tell me more what, what you're learning there. Yeah, I, th I think the world gets stuck in these binary arguments all the time. And not to take a cop out and say we don't choose a side on what's right and wrong. But I do think that when you're stuck in a binary argument, there's no progress forward. Um, you're just arguing. Um, so, I, so my current company, I work for the company that makes taser devices. And the current CEO and founder, here's an example of third path thinking. The current CEO and founder, basically, when he was, you know, a young college grad at, out of Harvard, he goes, well, why is it when there's a threat coming at us, the only option I have is to put a metal ball through a human being. That's my option. I have to shoot them with a bullet. And so that, that thinking is how electric weapons were born. Uh, the whole point is let's let's divorce the concept of stopping a threat with taking a life, right? I can stop a threat without taking a life. I love that. It's an example of third path thinking. Yeah. And the Tesla example that we use is like there's this trade with most with non-electric vehicles. There's a trade off with um, like gas mileage and performance, meaning the better the car is for the environment or with a gas model, the worse the performance. Right. It's like this binary and Tesla like third path thinking, like, we're not even going to get stuck in that binary. We're going to say, you know what, we can be great for the environment and we're not going to compromise on performance. And then you get an electric vehicle, which performs better than any of the gas vehicles, right? That's just physics. You're relying on physics and you're relying on first principles thinking. And so I do think that it is hugely applicable in business. It's also applicable in your, in your, your private life, um, in your relationships. And I think that there's wisdom in non-dual thinking. I love you. That was so good. <laughs> the funny thing is you said that you're meditating on that for five years, but actually that comment you just made about uh, how you can actually have both the best car and saving the environment. You said that like a decade ago. <laughs> so you already were practicing. That's why I think this appealed to you. It's like, you're already thinking about it. Um, no this was uh, 
full of wisdom uh, from everything about, uh, you know, how Tesla stock, uh, how to evaluate them. We talked about communications. You talked about, uh, uh, you know, vortex of <laughs> competence. I'm going to stick on that one for a long time. Uh, but appreciate this. Thank you so much, Andrea. Uh, please follow her on Twitter. She's at Andrea S. James. And hopefully you guys learned something new. Thank you again, Andrea. Appreciate your time with me. Thank you. I appreciate it as well. Thank you.